Welcome to One Stop Shop, a weekly podcast that helps ambitious e-commerce entrepreneurs learn from the best. Brought to you by Convergio. To learn more about managing all of your e-commerce tools, channels, and strategies from one dashboard, visit Convergio.com. On this episode of One Stop Shop, we interview Adam Kyle from BrothersLeatherSupply.com. After five years of climbing up the ladder in corporate America, Adam Kyle knew that starting and running his business was his true calling. But what he didn't plan on, however, is to have two businesses at once. He initially started Brothers Leather Supply as a side business, and it ended up exploding beyond expectations. Adam had to fine-tune many entrepreneurial skills, not the least of which is managing the expenses that come with tremendous business growth. Today, we talk to Adam about lessons that impact your bank account. Hey, Adam, how are you? Great, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Adam, can you tell us about Brothers Leather Supply? Brothers Other Supply Company started just as a dream, and not even a dream, maybe like a, a side conversation. Like I was looking for a leather bag, and I didn't find any leather bags that I liked enough to spend $2,000 on or $1,500 on. And then I started thinking, why does it cost this? Why does it cost me, the end user, this much money to buy a leather bag? So I started researching all I could about leather, how bags are made, what the process looks like, what makes a good bag, what makes a bad bag. And long story short, I figured out I could take a $2,500 investment and start uh, a side business and just see what happens. If we made five, 600 bucks a month in profit, that'd be huge. That could like, you know, that could pay for gas or whatever. And so, um, started in our basement with four designs, found a, you know, spent some time finding a manufacturer. And then I just built a website, put them online, started marketing as best I could. And people started ordering these bags and I operated off of a back order for about, about a little over a year. So we would basically, you know, say, okay, we've sold 50 bags and we would make 60 bags or 70 bags. We just used all of our profit to make more bags. We just kept doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that until we were able to get to a place where we could actually stock bags and all that good stuff. So um, our model has been though, can we like, let's make a really great leather bag at a really great price with the goal of selling more than all of our competitors selling, you know, for every one bag they sell, we'll sell four because a $350 leather bag or $400 leather bag is with is just as attractive, if not more attractive, than a bag made out of the same leather with a comparable design that's selling for $1,500 to $1,000. So um, that's been our whole model, and so far, so good. Was it strictly just your need to get a leather bag was the reason that you went into this, or kind of why leather? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's th- this... This answer is multifaceted. Number one, yes, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted a leather bag for myself, and I. I think that started me thinking about like why. Why can't I find a really good leather bag at a price that's I'm not going to have to like remortgage my home for, or, or potentially skip a mortgage payment because uh, I can't afford both. Um, so that was the first thing. The other thing was uh, I had started another company about six months prior to Brothers starting, or actually three months prior, and um, I had left. It's a it's an executive search firm called Harrison Gray Search and Consulting, and that's what what I was doing before. I was just looking. I was I'm an executive recruiter. We work with a number of insurance and financial services companies throughout the country, and we help them find people uh, for their growing organizations. Uh, but during that time, a former employer um, had you know was threatening to sue me, thinking that I was basically claiming that I was breaking my non compete, which at the time 
And throughout that, my non-compete, I wasn't breaking it, but it was it was just a tactic that he used to try to intimidate me, I think, or to not to basically suck up a lot of my cash in a lawsuit. So it was during that time that I said, okay, like um, I don't know what's going to happen with this lawsuit, but I also know that if something did happen, I would need another additional revenue stream. Um, and so I started this company and uh, hoping that you know nothing ever came from that. It was just a lot of you know uh, lawyer posturing. But uh, a profitable business came from that, right? Yeah, right, right. So there's a there's a blessing there for sure. There was definitely one of those hidden blessings you don't really see coming. Uh, but yeah, so that was like probably the that was probably the, the the thing that really said Adam. You know, there's you have you know at the time I had two little kids. I had one on the way, and so it's like you have to think of something else in case the worst happened. And so that's kind of that's kind of why I was motivated to start it. Before I move on to the next question, I I want to take you back. In the beginning, you mentioned something about designs and, uh, you know, manufacturer and whatnot. You made it sound so simple. It doesn't sound that simple to me to actually be able to find designers. And your budget was only 2500 And, mm -hmm. you know, are you a, 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 do you have, you don't have any fashion design? <laughs> nope. Or anything? No, right? Nope. So did you team up with some people or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, I have no, so I always, I, I used to be creative when I was a little kid and then, Throughout, somehow that died. I have like zero creativity. Um, I still think boot cut jeans are in, and my wife tells me they're not, but I really like them, and uh, I'm not going to change. So yeah, I'm not a I'm not like a, a fashion forward person. Um, one of my best friends is actually a, a lead designer for uh, the Rubbermaid brand. They own a tons of, tons of different brands, so he designs packaging all all the time. And so we were talking about a few businesses that we could do together. Uh, nothing really ever came from that. And then when I started this Brothers Leather, I said, hey, man, can you help me with a logo? He said, yeah. And I said, do you have any desire to do a little, um, you know, like bag design? He's like, yeah, I'm really interested in that. So it was good for him because he got to build he got to build uh, uh, his portfolio in a way, get to work on product designs. And I've had people tell us that, you know, our designs are outstanding. And, and he, his name is Ryan. He, is, he gets a ton of that credit because uh, he comes to us with a – design and then we all tweak it. We have design meetings every month and you know it takes a few rounds that we get to the end product, but they mostly come from his brain. So we are fortunate to have one of my best friends to be a really great skill set of his and um, he's, you know, the service he provides us, I feel like I pay I pay pennies to what, you know, uh, an, an, uh, another designer would charge us. So it's been it's been really mutually beneficial for us both. Yeah, excellent. Good. All right. So so it I mean it's obvious to me that this company really outgrew your expectations for it, but can you tell us about the event or event maybe moment when you knew or realized that you had something special? Yeah. So the first month, maybe a month and a half, I, I recognized all the buyers. Like they were friends, they were family members, they were acquaintances on Facebook or LinkedIn. Cause that's really all I did to share. I was like, probably like one of those annoying Facebook friends you have that's always promoting their company. That was probably me. So and, that was the, uh, first, the first tactic or the first strategy you did to attract your first buyers was basically um, reaching out to your friends and family and acquaintances. Uh huh. Yep. Okay. And, uh, and so, I started getting, you know, and I, and I also ran a 30% off discount for our first, you know, two months. So people, I wanted just to get the badge in people's hands. And so that was motivating for people. And then I remember it was maybe, so we, we launched March 17th of 2014. And it was maybe six, seven weeks after that, I saw a name come through, uh, like that purchased a bag and I didn't recognize the name at all. It was someone in Texas. And so I started researching, how did they fi find out? And they were uh, basically a friend of a friend of a friend, you know. 
and they saw us on social media and I reached out to them, kind of asked them and they explained how they saw it. And my mind, that wasn't the moment where I knew it took off, but that was the moment where I thought, okay, this is not just charity at this point. This is somebody who actually thinks this is a good product at a great price and they want in. And then that turned into 10 people and to 50 people. And then we started getting interest from like, um, you know, some smaller like uh, publications like blogs uh, that were like, hey, we want to write about you. I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. So we started growing that way. And then Maxim picked us up randomly. Like one of the writers for Maxim um, bought a bag himself and then decided to write an, a little review on us. And mm-hmm. our website was like, you know, at that time we were averaging maybe 100 views a day, maybe. And uh, just in that one instance, we had like 10,000 people on our website. Because it was on Maxim's homepage for 24 hours, right in the middle of their homepage. Mm-hmm. And so it was, that's when I knew that was probably six months in. That's when I knew that, okay, I think there's some potential here. And we got tons of sales, uh, from that and, and a lot of other blog, blog and online, you know, uh, articles that were written about us. So that's kind of when I knew though, the maximum moment was like a big deal for us. Mm-hmm. Right on. You touch base on some of the things that other people did like that article in particular, but what did you do in the early days to help your company grow at such a tremendous pace? Yeah, I was always looking for the next uh, buyer. And so I think like, I think sometimes people think that, or a method of selling is like turning on a lever and waiting. And um, like I explained earlier, like I felt like I had to, I had to earn money and had to grow this thing as best I could in case something happened with, you know, the the legal situation that I was in. So um, I was always looking for you know, the next person that could buy a bag, whether someone had wrote us a question and were, was kind of curious, or maybe I, I, we started reaching out to retailers. So trying to sell our bags at wholesale levels. Um, so I just kept pushing that way. And myself either was sharing on Facebook or it was building our Twitter followers or, you know, our building our Instagram. We're up to a little under 10,000 followers now. It's all organic stuff. We don't, we don't pay to advertise or anything with Instagram. Um, so I just always was always, I still am, but I always was looking for that next deal and making sure that if I had someone interested, I was going to figure out how to get a bag in their hands that was profitable for me, but still like these bags sell themselves. When someone's carrying our bag, I know that how many people each day, each month, each year are going to see that thing. And so, um, every person markets our bags and if they had a good, good, if they had an enjoyable experience, um, dealing with us or with me, then they like the bag that much more. So mm-hmm. It was for just providing high level of customer service and really being aggressive and figuring out ways to sell. At what point did you start to feel like you actually needed to pay closer attention to your growth and how it impacted your expenditures? Yeah, so um, for a while, I remember when we I remember when we moved the company into its own entity. For until I knew what was going on, I just kind of filed it as a, you know, as a. As a, I was doing business as under another LLC, under my other LLC for my other company. Just I thought this thing lasts four or five months. I'll just shut it down. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I we when my accountant was like, I think you need to really build this thing out, and you need to start budgeting and start because again, let me take a step back. Like I started my other company with a business plan, a budget, uh, you know, expect like typical like how you start a business. I started it, my other company that way with brothers. I was like, eh, like let's just see what happens. And so I had to basically on the fly say, okay, now I have to really start treating this like a real company. I know that sounds that might sound elementary, but I, that, that's what my mind had to start doing when we had to get its own bank account, when we had to file it as its own LLC, when we eventually moved it to an S-corp. 
um, started hiring people, building out a budget. I said, okay, this is not just about some side money for my wife, for our family, for my wife and I and our family. It, it, this is really something that we have to spend a lot of time on. Um, so I think it was, it was when my accountant was like, we have, to, we have to change things up now because you're just growing too fast. So I thought, okay, this is, I, have to, I have to start looking at this differently than I was. Did you make any mistakes when you initially started scaling? Yeah. Oh man, I I made I made so many mistakes. Um, the mistakes that I made, I think uh, the biggest ones, and I'm very open about this because like this is as an entrepreneur, this is how you learn. Like when I was working, I worked in Denver for a like a, a technology company, and I had a great boss who is uh, he was amazing, but he was giving me feedback all the time, and I love that. I just loved what can I do better? How can I get better? What can I do better? How can I get better? And he gave it to me. And when I started working for myself, I realized that this doesn't happen. Nobody's telling you, hey, Adam, you could do this better. How you learn is by screwing up, acknowledging and recognizing that you screwed up, and then figuring out why you screwed up, and then trying not to do that again, when, which you eventually will do it. You won't do it again, but you'll probably do it three or four more times. Um, mistakes that I've made are, uh, one, like poor cash management. When I say poor cash management, it's not like we're throwing money out the window. It was um, like, okay, I think we're going to need to to make an extra 500 bags based on our sales growth. Let's do that now when we really could have just made an extra 200 bags and saved all that cash, right? So I, I tried to save us money by, by making um, more bags at once, but we just, you know, that was a real challenge because if your sales slow down during off times, which is basically like January through August, then you're stuck with product that's not, it's just money that could be in your bank account or could be going towards marketing or could be going towards hiring people. Um, so I learned the hard way from making some not that smart uh, purchase orders. I think the other thing that as we grew fast, we grew out, we outgrew our space in a few different times. So I rented a really big warehouse or like kind of studio warehouse here in Grand Rapids. Um, after about three or four months, I realized, okay, I rented this huge warehouse and we are filling it, but there's still a lot of space we're not using. And then uh, another space opened up in the same building, so we were able to move down there. Uh, that fits us perfectly. However, I'm still paying money, not all of it, I'm still paying some money towards that other space until it gets leased out, which it's been a year and a half and it hasn't got leased out yet. So, uh, you know, I, I grew, I tried to, I tried to like grow like a fish tank. I thought if our space is bigger, we'll grow faster. Not really true, evidently. Um, and so uh, those kinds of things, I think, where I'm like, I moved ahead of the game. Like, I, I just... I was, I'm so aggressive and we grew so fast and we've had a really great start, but I also have made decisions based on that growth that I should have taken a step back, looked at the big picture and um, like done a reverse autopsy in a way, like what could go wrong? Answer those questions before I make the decision. And then if the good still outweigh the bad, then go for it. If they don't outweigh the bad, then I, then I shouldn't. And that's how we're like the last year has been a lot better, but in our second year was really, you know, was kind of a myriad of bad decisions when it comes to cash flow for me, for sure. Yeah. I mean, to follow this trend then of the cash flow, what specific advice do you have for other business owners who need the money to scale but are mm -hmm. operating just off of existing profits? I think this is a really important question that kind of gets lost in the sexiness of entrepreneurship because everybody wants to, not, not everybody, entrepreneurs want a successful company. Entrepreneurs want to have a great product. They want cool stories. They want awesome, epic videos. They want a great social media presence. They want all this. But then there's also the cash part of it, right? So uh, the advice I'd have is always ask yourself the question, 
can I live without this? Especially in your first five years. Like, can I live without a $10,000 two-minute video? Can I live without that? Is it, Or am I going to make that $10,000 back in the first month and I'll make – it'll grow money that way. If, if that's the case, go for it. But if you can live without it and it's not going to immediately affect your bottom line, then don't do it. Um, and you also need a really good check and balance in your life. For my like my uh, wife Beth, she's the president of Brothers now. I'm the CEO, but she she's the president. She runs all the day to day. She manages our team, and her and I uh, are lucky that we can have business conversations and be married and, and work together all the time. But we have these hard conversations a lot. Like, is this something we need or do? In mostly my case, I just want it because I'm kind of like a very uh, I'll spend. I don't have a problem spending money, and so it's good to have. Someone like my wife who's like, do we need this? How is this going to affect our bottom line? But I would, I would say if you don't have that person in your life, it doesn't have to be your wife, obviously, or a significant other. Uh, but go find a mentor or go find a buddy who's good with cash, let's say, or is really frugal. Um, and, and say, hey, can once a month we meet for a beer or for coffee or for lunch? And I can bounce off our P&L with you and I can show you what our cash flow is and say, here's how I want to grow. Is this smart? You need somebody else looking at it other than you because they're a lot less emotionally involved than you are. That's, that, that would be my advice. I would say if it doesn't affect the bottom line, if it's not going to affect it in the short term and you really don't need it, then don't do it and find somebody that you can have honest conversations with. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent advice, actually, finding somebody who's not emotionally involved because they can have, um, you know, a more like objective opinion about what you should do next, mm-hmm. uh, even if they don't have plenty of experience. But um, Adam, um, you know, what people do in the beginning to, you know, get some momentum is usually different from after, you know, building your brand and people know who you are and you've got that level of trust from your potential customers. Um, and you've grown tremendously in the past, what, a couple of years since you started the business. Yes. So like, how are you able to maintain the growth as opposed to, you know, we talked about how you started in the beginning, you shared with your, you know, friends and family, and then you got mm-hmm. the first person. But I think for our listeners, maybe, um, you know, telling their friends and friends of friends. I mean, it would be cool if they can get um, referrals just like that, but it's it's not always going to happen. So, yep. and at the same time, you're trying to save money, you know, not save, but you're trying not to spend too much, which we're just talking about right now. And you're trying to scale your business. You're trying to cut your costs and you're trying to maintain the same quality of the product. So you can't really cut corners with that. So how do you maintain the growth and ad- and not necessarily advertise, but get new customers and maintain the old customers with as little money as possible. So, um, this, that's, that is a very important question as well. We've been fortunate because we've been able to find, um, what I like to call, uh, brand, like brand incubators in a way. Essentially here's how it works. Like we just got done doing a deal with guilt and guilt, uh, basically will sell, they're selling vouchers to brothers leather. Uh, you can buy them in increments, $100 increments, $200 increments, $400 increments, and you get a discount off that $400 increment. Um, and basically, long story short, is you can get a, a pretty great bag from us at a really good price because you buy the voucher on Gale. You come to our website, you buy it. We use that as – we look, that, look at that as marketing spend. We don't look at that as like a sales spend. So the money we're going to lose basically from our margin on these deals, on these deals with guilt – we look at it as marketing dollars because that's guaranteed money that though we're not making it uh, off our margin, but it's money we're spending on marketing to get a guaranteed purchase and get more people carrying our product. So instead of putting ten thousand dollars on a Facebook campaign, we're putting 
just as this example, we're going to say we're going to lose $10,000 out of our margin. We're still going to cover our costs. We're still going to make a little bit of money, and we're going to have you know, an extra 300 people carrying Brothers Leather supply bags. We've done this with Huckberry. We've done it with companies like Urban Daddy, and they've all looked different with Need. So they've looked different, but either they've bought them through their these guys' websites or whatever, but there's millions of people following these, these companies to learn about new brands and get new brand and get new products from these new brands at a really great price. And so, um, you know, it's, we've done that is instead of just saying, okay, we think this Facebook campaign will work. Let's put $3,000 in it. We've said, let's just sell product and, and make our money back at least, or if a little bit more and use that as our marketing dollars. Cause that's ultimately what we want people carrying our bags. So that's kind of how we've grown so fast is because we've got someone carrying one of our bags and then they say, Hey, I need a weekender. And then they're going to come back in six months and buy it. Or they're going to come back and buy another messenger. Or they're going to tell the 15 people they work with, um, in their office, like, Hey, this bag's amazing. Those, those people come to our website and buy them. So, uh, lucky they'll post it on Instagram or somewhere where they have exactly. Exactly. And we always survey, like I like to survey our buyers, say, what do you like about it? How'd you hear about us? You know, what do you tell people about us? And uh, we go through those responses to figure out where we're getting people, what they think, and how we can improve on that and how we can you know, influence our designs based on their feedback. So I think getting people's feedback has been a really uh, valuable way to grow. And I'd be remiss as well if I didn't say when you have a bad – someone has a bad experience with your company, which will happen. Um, when I say bad experience, like a bag, let, let's say a, the, the stitching starts to come out. These bags are all handmade. Sometimes that happens. Um, if you take a bad situation and you get a great customer service, 99% of the time, those customers like, like you more than they did before. Like, they could have the worst situation with you. You come at them and say, hey, so sorry about this. I'm going to overnight you a bag right now so, you're, so you have the bag tomorrow. You don't miss a day of work with your bag. and Just send me that other bag back and we'll get that repaired or we'll, you know, or we'll eat the cost, whatever. But it's, it's really making sure that every person you touch – that says, hey, I'm going to spend money with you. I'm going to basically invest in you in a new brand with not a lot of history. Um, you make them, you make, you show them how much you care about them by giving them the the highest level of service you possibly can, because that's what people tell people. No one ever says, oh man, uh, this is a great bag, really awful customer service, but I love this company. That conversation <laughs> never goes that way. It's I had a really awful, I had a really it's kind of not that great experience, but they did an amazing job to make sure that I'm telling everybody about it. We try to build raving fans of our brand. That's what there's a book out there called Raving Fans, and you should read it. Uh, but we just try to create those raving fans. We don't want customers. We want people that are like raving fans of our brand. I think that's helped our growth too. Mm-hmm. I love that humanity first approach. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Mm-hmm. I want to back you up for a second though, because you talked about how you look differently at, um, I guess, what I'll broadly label as discounts. And one of the common um, stances is if you have an awesome product, why would you discount it? It sounds like you have an awesome product, but you're doing that anyways. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yep. So we have been strategic about when we do it. So for example, like on our website, we don't offer tons of sales. So if you're following our brand, you're not going to see a ton of sales, maybe one or two a year, maybe. Um, but these things like guilt, like this is a 4 million people are going to see our, we're, 4 million people were exposed to brothers in the last 15 or 20 days. Um, and so we make a strategic choice to say, listen, they don't know us from Shinola. They don't know us from Will Leather Goods. Uh, and those guys have been around for 15, 20 years. 
why are they going to pick us over them? Even though we are a little cheaper, or significantly cheaper in some respects, but still there's that, there's that name brand association, especially if you're sp- buying a leather bag that you're not going to buy another one for another 10 years. So we make a calculated risk on when we do discount our product to get it in front of as most, many people as we possibly can. Because um, I'm with you, you don't want to turn into a discount brand. You don't you don't want to train your customers to be waiting for the next discount. That's something people brands do, and they fall into that. But we're and we were guilty of that when we first started because we just wanted to sell as many products as we could to try to get this thing off the ground. Uh, because we don't have any capital investment, we have no other you know we have, we have no investment other than our own profits or you know Beth and I. So um, we just had to be strategic about it. But I, I would rather. I would rather offer a discount and have four million pe- people see my brand than not at this stage of the game, and that's just a risk I'm willing to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I just like the to challenge what has kind of become sure. the norm in certain circles. No, sure, and sure. So... I mean, you see, a lot of our competitors don't even have Black Friday sales because they're that high end, mm-hmm. and I get it. I completely get it. But I also look at our customer. Like our customer isn't the customer traditionally that's going. If you're going to go, if you want to spend fifteen hundred dollars on a on a bag then a $500 bag is not going to do anything for you. We're selling to people that said, I want to get a $1,000 bag, but not till I'm 45 or not till I'm 50, you know, not till I have, you know, six figures in my bank account. I'm not doing that. And so we're saying maybe you can have a really great lifetime quality leather bag now at 27 or 24. And so, um, so we have to, I, we try to keep in check. We want to be a nice, high-end brand, but we also don't want to be too high-end because that's not, that goes against our mission in a way. So can we solve a great, have a great product, but we're not marketing to the people that are spending $500 on shoes. We're just not doing that or, or $2,000 on a bag. That's not, our, that's not our customer traditionally. So another piece of common advice that I get the impression just listening to your story and the, the research that we did on you guys is that people will say, follow your passion. And obviously, in an ideal world, to follow your passion and do something that you're good at would be ideal. But overall, do you think it's necessary to be passionate about what you do? The answer to that question, uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me state what I believe about this because I've thought about this a lot. <clears throat> and I don't know if I can answer your question, how you phrased it uh, this way, but I'm going to try. So I believe that y- you should be excited about what you're doing uh, if, if you're an entrepreneur. If you, if you are on the fence about starting a company or you want to you work a little harder, you want to keep growing your bank account so you can do that, um, you don't have to be as excited. You should just keep working hard. But you don't have to feel like, <clears throat> man, I'm in, my, I'm in my long-term seat right here, what I'm doing. You don't have to be passionate at that level. But I always caution people because I have people in my life that tell me this all the time, like, oh, man, you must be so passionate about leather. You must be so passionate about uh, creating designs. Or you know, handling customers, or and the answer is I'm not that passionate about leather. I'm just not. I'm not passionate about um, necessarily the next fashion trends. But what I'm passionate about is growing something from nothing. That's what if I if I look at what I'm good at, and it's basically like seeing something and being able to build it, or seeing something being able to fix it. Those are my two core strengths. I think as a as a entrepreneur, as a leader, as a person, like I, I can restore things and I can build things. And so it could be batteries, it could be hats, it could be uh, plungers. You know, if I, if I have a goal, I can say, hey, we're selling 30 plungers this month and we want to sell 300 a year from now. This time next year, we're going to be selling 300 a month. How do we do that? That's what gets me going. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's, it's almost like a widget. Now, now, people, I've said this to them, they said, oh, how can you not care about what you do? And that's not what I'm saying. I care about leather, I care about our company, I care about creating great products, but that's all a part of building something. That's all a part of what I'm really passionate about. Um, 
So I, I would be, to answer the question, I think you have to be excited. If you're running a company, you have to be passionate, excited about it. I don't think, I think people get in trouble when they say, I really want to be, um, Let's say I really want to create – I love dancing. I want to create a dance studio. I want to run a dance studio. I really love dancing. Um, maybe, maybe that's true. They're great at dancing, but they don't have any business mind to run a dance – like the who's going to clean it, what kind of lights are you going to use in your studio, what mm-hmm. kind of floor is that going to look like. Like that person's really just focused on creating a really great dance uh, dancing program somewhere, or dancing lessons. So right. maybe they should work at maybe I become a traveling dance teacher because then I can just go in people's houses and teach them dance. That would be something I would tell that person to do. I wouldn't say start a dance studio because you're unless you hire somebody or partner with somebody, you're not going to be able that that's not what you're gifted at. And mm-hmm. I think that's the slippery slope of entrepreneurship or entrepreneur of uh, that, that's a slippery slope entrepreneurs have to really question is yeah. is, you know, am I am I am I really good at this or am I do I just want to do this? Right. It sounds like what you're, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth really, but um, what I'm taking from what you said is that it's not necessary to be passionate per se about the product itself. You just have to believe in it. I mean, obviously, if you're going to sell something, you have to believe in your product and you have to believe that you're offering something good at, you know, a good price and, you know, all that stuff. But you don't exactly have to be passionate about the product that you're selling what you have to be passionate about is the tasks and the things that you do every day or the results that you get out of them. So, you know, like you said, you like to fix and you like to grow. And I think you gave a really good example where you said, even if it were plungers, I would still, you know, do this because it's, it's helping you meet some needs that you have. You have, you feel a need to grow and expand and fix. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this need and a lot, that's the reason why you weren't able to stay in the corporate world after five years and why probably our listeners, maybe 99.9% of them, you know, probably went through the same path of trying a traditional, you know, working life and their yeah. hands are tied and they can't fix things and they want to have their own thing so they can grow and fix because yeah. that's what entrepreneurs do. So mm-hmm. it's great, great stuff. Great stuff. I love what you're saying with your advice, but I feel like the pitfall then is you could do a lot of things. So for the people that feel the tension of what do I do, what one concrete piece of advice would you give them on how to decide? I was going to say, Jeff, you're, you're, you're killing me with awesome questions here, bro. That's what I was going to say. Um, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like, how, how do I, like, there's a lot of things I could be, I could sell or I could do or I could build or I could grow. What, how, do, how do I do that? How do I figure out what that is? Is that your question? Yeah, because I, I personally struggle with the same type of things where it's like you have certain gifts that are applicable in a lot of different mm-hmm. areas. If you like building and solving problems, I mean, clearly you could do a lot, but you're doing bags. And so for mm-hmm. the person that's on that edge of what is it that I do, how do they decide? So I think there's three pieces to this answer. The first, the first piece is I, I always suggest, like someone told me, uh, their, their business professor in college said, I wish every student would start a business after high school, fail, then go to college. And if it fails, then go to college. And I said, that makes no sense to me for a lot of reasons. The biggest is, of which is the most only reason I'm able to be successful in entrepreneurship right now is because I had a, a really great experience at the corporate level. And I had a boss who really, uh, his name was Richard. He really, you know, basically like molded me and showed me like, hey, man, you're not that good. Here's how you can improve because I thought I was good. And I, he helped me realize where I could get better at. But that my time at, at, in corporate America really taught me about leadership, dealing with different personalities, having to deal with um, human resources and how that works. And um, it really helped shape how I 
how I how we operate our companies now. And so I would say the first thing is is look back to your time as you're working if you're working for a company, which most people are, and they're they're going to start their own like what and you're doing right now. Where do you most feel fulfillment? Where do you feel like you're you're doing really great things? And what does that look like? If it's running customer service, if it's managing people, if it's uh, if it's dealing with uh, you know like your clients, like where is that thing that you're like, this is what I love. This is, I can't, I would, lo- I love this part of my job. Um, and I would take that and I would take it to the next question and I would say, okay, t- based on what, what you love and that would coincide with what you're good at, what, where's a problem that needs to be fixed? My problem was there was no leather bags that I really liked that were in a price range that I could afford. So I thought there's gotta be something here. The answer might not be like sunglasses because everybody wants sweet sunglasses, but there's every, every day I see a brand new sunglass company come out, right? So you have to research the market and look for a gap. Um, it's not going to work if there's no gap. It just won't work. So you have to try to find a gap as best you can and then make sure that that gap applies with what you're good at. And so it just takes, I think it takes a lot of research. I probably spent three weeks researching the leather bag thing before I really jumped down the rabbit hole because I thought I, I, I couldn't find anything and I was searching as best I could. Um, and so that's when I did it. So I think it's a really long winded answer, but I would say like, take your previous experiences, try to marry what you think you're good at with what, or what you liked about your previous experiences with a core personality trait of who you are, and then look for a gap in the market and try to try to capitalize on that gap. That's great advice. I love it. Um, Adam, where can our listeners find out more about you and your company or maybe purchase your, your bags? Yeah, everybody right now can go online and buy a bag. Uh, it's, uh, our website's pretty simple, brothersleathersupply.com. And then uh, you can check out all the bags. We have our little story on there. We have some videos and you'll get the whole picture. And then you can reach out to us uh, through a chat, an online chat we have going all the time or just support at brosleather.com and we'll answer any questions that you have. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, no worries, guys. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. One Stop Shop is a production of Convergio. Learn how to manage all of the marketing tools, channels, and strategies that you need from one dashboard by visiting convergio.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit comealivecreative.com. To listen to more episodes or to give us a rating, please visit convergio.com forward slash iTunes.